informative radio for the Sunshine State. You may be owed some money. After 911 and 411, call 541. That's 727-541-1741. Call Gulfstream Motorsports for a diminished value report. Due to my 28 years experience in the auto salvage business, I'm very good with wrecks. So if your car's been involved in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for the lost value of your repaired vehicle. And visit us at GulfstreamMotorsports.com. Looking for car shows? Then look no further than FLACarshows.com. On your computer or on your mobile device, FLACarshows.com is a comprehensive list of automotive events plus videos and news articles. Whether you're looking for car shows, cruise-ins, meetups, automotive festivals, cars and coffees, or anything else relating to an internal combustion engine, then this is a site for you. Check it out online or on your phone at FLACarshows.com. Turn it on and rip the knob off. You're listening to the radio. Hi, everybody. This is Tommy James reminding you you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. So tune in. Okay, listeners, welcome you. Tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and I'm your show host, Robert. Run your computers in Google, Tantalk1340.com, and you can see us live in the studio here in downtown Clearwater. Don't forget to check out our website, GulfstreamMotorsports.com, where you can find out all about us. And if you've missed any of our past shows, don't forget to check out NostalgicRadioAndCars.com. Well, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I stand corrected here. I'm actually not in the studio in downtown Clearwater. I am in Monterey, California. And uh, if you tuned in our last two shows, we're doing part three with Bob Kerr, the legendary designer uh, who was with Disney for 27 years, designed some of the more famous rides that probably most of you, including myself, have ridden on, particularly the monorail and the Autotopia cars. But anyway, so Monterey Collector Car Week started Monday at the Porsche of Monterey or Porsche Monterey. And uh, had a gathering of Porsches there, 450 cars, pretty amazing. And uh, day two, we uh, hung out with our friends from Classic Motorsports at the Classic Motorsports Collective Car or Classic Car Kickoff Show in downtown uh, Pacific Grove. Of course, Classic Motorsports is out of Daytona, Florida. On Wednesday, we went to the Little Car Show. And they call it the Little Car Show because they're mostly little cars, small-bore European cars. Although, there was a couple of Cobra Kid cars and uh, countless uh, Porsches, which are not really small-bore, but they're there. But I was amazed at how many electric cars were there. In fact, there was one guy there with a black 911, and it was electric. And there was a guy with a Volkswagen bus there, a bay window, the big ones, like 68 newer. It had electric power. And uh, that's kind of the thing out there a little bit. You know, a couple of guys experimenting with it. You know, little DIYers. Do it yourself. I think that's what DIY stands for. But anyway, and then on uh, Thursday, we went to Legends of the Autobahn, which is basically BMWs, Mercedes, Audis, and the Volkswagen. And there were a few Porsches scattered in there. On Friday, yours truly was working the Porsche Works reunion with our friends at... Uh, Fast lane travel. Remember, if you want to take a trip to Europe and you want to visit the Porsche factory, the Mercedes factory, the BMW factory, check out fastlanetravel.car. So we were there. We were vendors and we were uh, having a great time. On Saturday, we had the Concorso Italiano and uh, all Italian cars. There's probably something like uh, 300 really cool exotic Italian cars, Ferraris, Lancia, Maserati. Fiat, Pantera, Iso, and uh, some other interesting Italian exotics. Later that day, we went to Laguna Seca for the vintage races. And Sunday was the Pebble Beach Concourse, the grand finale of the week. And I had the opportunity to meet Mr. Bob Gurr and uh, share in some picture taking with him. And of course, our good friend Jeffrey Hacker was there of uh, Forgotten Fiberglass. In fact, they had a whole list of specialty early 50s American-made cars. And uh, Bob Gerber was there with Struther McMinn's um, prototype. Interesting car. But anyway, on that note, I think it's time to go into a little 
California IA music. So we're going to play a little California Dream in here because I'm dreaming and I'm in California. And uh, from the mamas and the papas. And so don't touch that dial. We, we will be right back with our special interview with Bob Gurr. Mm-hmm. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we're back, and it's part three with uh, the legendary designer and uh, Disneyland fun ride creator, Bob Gurr. Bob, how are you doing this evening? And welcome back to part well, three. I'm having just as much fun as designing yet another ride. <laughs> Super. All right, so last week we were talking about um, Disneyland and some of the really cool rides and stuff like that you did, and you were talking um, at the very end there, we were talking a little bit about the rides like uh, Haunted Mansion and how you created the system and, and how these little, and I remember those very much, very well when I was a kid, how they, you know, kind of twist and go up and down and all this stuff. What about, let's say, like, uh, what was it, uh, Something Mountain, you know, with the train and everything that went through there and some of the other stuff? Did you, were you involved in those too? Yeah, well, yes, we had, uh, well, let's see, we had, uh, you know, the Haunted Mansion, which is a you know, continuous ride. Right. We had the uh, Matterhorn Mountain, which was uh, you know, like two roller coasters inside a mountain, and I designed the, the track for that. Uh, and, and also a submarine at Disneyland. Uh, you know, whatever Walt needed, he says, oh, Bob will probably draw it up. So the original submarine, the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea sub that they had, the Nautilus, you did that one too? Sure. Oh, wow. That's well, cool. <laughs> it was simple. Walt got a hold of a car guy, and the car guy slowly under, understood some engineering, and then every job was new and a different. So every year you learn a little bit more, and pretty soon it was like you, you were not scared of a, of a large job. And um, oh, but he did throw me a job that was kind of a curve. Yeah. For the New York World's Fair. We wanted to have Ford Motor Company. Uh, well, they wanted us to sponsor. Or no, they wanted to sponsor a ride where we would have Ford vehicles moving in a in a in a track with a show. In fact, it was the two tracks. So I it took about four years to engineer a device to make Ford convertibles uh, move through this attraction for two years, and it was called the Ford Magic Skyway. Oh. A lot of the people that love uh, Fords uh, know know of this, and uh, and they uh, they if you really want a collector car, you find a Mustang that was used on the Ford Magic Skyway for the New York World's Fair. But anyway, that was a a entirely different kind of a job. It was a kind of a long one because of the number of years, and it was back to cars again, back to moving Ford cars on a moving a moving. Uh, moving track automatically. And when I finish that, they're just about finished with it. Walt says, oh, I need a president of the United States. We need a mechanical one. 
and the people had been working on the heads and the hands and the clothes and all that, but they needed a mechanical robotic uh, structure, a mechanical, well, mechanical guy. So I took out, took out 90 days to do that as like a separate quick, separate quick job. And that was the state of Illinois exhibit of, with an animated President Lincoln, which was the most startling uh, robotic animatronic person at that time. That, you know, that was like 1964, uh, which led to Disney's continuing on with the animated humans and animals that were, you know, extremely sophisticated. So, yes, I went from cars, got up to trains, wound up with moving Ford cars, and then wound up with the President of the United States. And then uh, by 1981, I left uh, Ford to head off to other challenges. And uh, I did 150 jobs for everybody else, and after I did 100 for Walt. So when you left Walt Disney, what where did you go from there? And what was did you still kind of stay around the Los Angeles Hollywood area and 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 still do stuff for let's say the movie industry or anything like that? Sure, uh, same place, same house, same office, same everything. Only this time I went down the street to Universal Studios, uh, Disney's arch enemy, huh. uh, because Universal is a fr- uh, they're, they're a friskier company. They like to do wilder stuff, and they asked me to design a thirty foot tall animated King Kong gorilla. Nobody builds a thirty foot tall anything, and especially you don't put it in a dark ride where you're letting the public in a in a tram car on a bridge that shakes and then the bridge tilts a little bit and then the tram car slides sideways to within three feet of King Kong's screaming mouth. <laughs> That's what Universal wanted. And I said, oh, I love that one. So we had a great time. It was a very easy machine to design and build. See, the bigger something gets, the more relative space there is on the inside of it. And it was there for 22 years before uh, the New York streets got burned down and the King Kong got burned up with it. So that was a that was a big leap doing something different for a competitor. You know, nobody got irritated anything. You know, because I just design anything for anybody, and that uh, went on to a series of all kinds of different jobs. I even did lighting for Michael Jackson for the Victory Tour in 1984. Also in 1984, when the Olympics were in Los Angeles. They have a closing ceremony that was very involved, and the David Walper, the producer, wanted a 50-foot diameter flying saucer full of hundreds of lights to show up like it was an alien from Mars. A flying saucer came from Mars, scared the daylights out, everybody in the Coliseum that night, and I only had five weeks uh, to design that thing and design it and test it, get it, get it running and everything for a, uh, for a show. Now, that's a different kind of a thing. If you design an apparatus that's going to be on a live show, that's got to go through a 15-minute window of time, and you only got five weeks to do it, and it has to be a never-fail, you know, because the whole world's watching this thing, is different than designing a train that's going to run for 20 years. These are two opposite kinds of things. You know, one of the last jobs I did was for a hotel in Las Vegas where Steve Wynn was going to build a Treasure Island hotel. And he wanted two ships to get in a fight, you know, ships of the 1800s, you know, like a British frigate uh, and a a pirate uh, frigate. And the boat had to move like 180 feet along the sidewalk and get in a big fight with the pirates. And the pirates put a cannonball through the side of the British ship and it would lean over and sink with the captain going down with it three times a day. <laughs> crazy, crazy job. But these are the kind of things I love to engineer. When you, when you, when you, so at this point you left Disneyland and you had your own consulting yep. firm. How were you staffed? Did you have, did some of the people from Disneyland go with you? Did you have to, were these outside people? Did you have like a core team of guys that worked with you throughout the whole time? No, I was a consultant as a one one a one person shop in a way 
being what would be the lead mechanical designer on a big on a big job, mm-hmm. typically in uh, the entertainment industry and the, to a big degree the themed entertainment industry, there will be a company like let's say a Universal or a Knott's Berry Farm or something. They want to have a new attraction, you know, like two years away. They'll go out and talk to companies that build this kind of stuff and say, we would like this custom thing just for us. Can can you do it? How much will it cost? The time it'll take. So what that means, you now have a project. So they have a defined project. So they will assign some management to be in charge of the project as project managers, you know, which we call, like, let's say, the lead agency. Then there'll be maybe 21 to 22 different uh, trades, different vendors. So now that we will put together for the length of the the production of the design and installation and test, a group of companies that are used to doing all this kind of stuff based upon the craft that they have. Uh, And then at the end of the job, they, they all split off and go off and go do something else. In the case of the sinking ship in Las Vegas is a good example. We're going to use water, all right? You're going to have water consultants. We're going to dig big, deep holes in the ground so the ship can sink. Okay, we're going to involve a lot of uh, uh, civil engineering and pouring concrete. Oh, we're going to move a ship. Oh, okay, we're going to have an underwater propulsion system. Oh, the ship is going to have a fire. Oh, now you have to have a fire consultant company that knows how to do fire that's uh, safe. Oh, we're going to have a lot of underwater electrical. Oh, now you need a company that does uh, underwater type of wiring. Oh, and by the way, it's going to be a stunt show with live people. Oh, now you need a stunt company uh, that they know how to do uh, safe uh, stunt work. Then, of course, you need a company that can build a frame and skin it so it looks like a boat. And then, of course, it's going to run on wheels. Well, okay, what's going to have factories to do that? So after a while, you can see you can collect a group of companies by their different trades and combine them under the management of the, of the company that's buying it. In this case, let's say the Steve Wynn Company building a Treasure Island Hotel. Oh, and by the way, you're going to work with the architects that are designing the building because your show is going to have to interface with the front end. So you can see uh, a job is almost never done by a single company. It's a group of companies that will design and build and install and test and turn over an operating attraction to a, a, a park management. So were you... Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So were like you the project manager, project engineer on the whole day, so everything has to go through you, you've got to approve it and say, this is what we're going <laughs> to... Or how does that work? No, no, what it amounts to, uh, I don't have to basically approve anything. But in the case of this one, let's say that the large amount of the job was the two ships, how they're going to move. They're going to use up a lot of property. They're going to dig big holes in the ground. And all the other trades, are their stuff is going to be attached to all this moving stuff. So because of that, they would assign me as the lead uh, designer. So in other words, when we talk about a configuration of stuff, I would be in charge of making the first layouts of what's going to be and where it's going to move, the space it's going to take, how it's going to work, up to the point of making the actual production drawings of these things, you know, for production. Uh, and that because I have to start drawing enough first that everybody can see how their stuff is going to fit our stuff, let's say. So I still operate as a single designer, but I'm responsible to the buyer, which would be Steve Wynn Company. Then all of the other trades are also working for the Steve Wynn Company, but we're all working together dimensionally. And it's very important when you have a what we call a field manager, which Universal does a good job at. Everybody's trying to get access to the same place on a site. And when you have a good manager, he referees who gets what part of the square feet of the construction site for how many hours, interfacing with everybody else. That's the way this stuff works. 
Interesting, interesting. So then basically you've got to they they give you excuse me a set of parameters. It has to be we're gonna, it's got to fit inside this hotel or on the front, the facade. And then this is the overall, let's just say square, rectangle or whatever we're working. It's got to fit fit in this or the, it's obviously a, a three-dimensional deal. So you have to make everything fit inside that. Then you come up with that drawing, that concept, so to speak. And then once that kind of gets quasi-approved, that's when you go out and you meet with everybody else. Is that kind of how it works? No, it's a, it's a, it's a continuous uh, blend. In other oh, okay. words, we're meeting like every, every two weeks. But let's say, in the case of Treasure Island, they say, okay, the building occupies this number of square feet. My whole front end has got different shapes and things. And they've already made in their shops. They make a little scale model, all painted up really cute with all the little boats and everything in it. So that way, everybody is looking at a scale model of the whole front of that hotel. So that way, you can actually see it. And then at the same time, the architects are laying out where everything's going to go based upon what preliminary shapes look like they might be. And what that means is you now define what's going to go where, and that way then everybody can get deeper and deeper and deeper into their details. Like, you know, I'll lay out an idea for a ship. Oh, it's got to have a structure like this. Oh, I got to have wheels for it. And, you know, every month or every week goes by, there's more and more details getting defined. And you work that definition. But here's the, here's the thing about, like, this kind of work. A normal company would make all their engineering, get all the drawings done, get everything approved, then price it out, and then try to go get somebody to build it. Well, in most cases, these jobs, we, we're still drawing it as we're building it. We only we, we get maybe 20 or 30% drawn, and we're already building it. So in other words, we never finish all the drawings before we start the construction. We draw just enough to get the construction started, and then we all draw and dig and weld together and keep on going. Well, what, Otherwise, you'd never get it done. Then what about how about changes? I mean, you like you get you've got it. It seems to me that you would. All right, we have this concept. We're getting in it. Oops. Uh, all right, so we got to change something here real quick. And obviously, everybody's on board. Um, how, how often did that occur? Probably quite a bit. Continuous. <laughs> okay, this, it's a good, you you mentioned it. now the change order business is two two issues. We have the technical decision of what we're going to change and why. Okay, it's going to involve money because a change order means money. Right. All right. In the case of every one of these jobs I worked on, I would have let's say there was a guy named Larry Lester from from um, Universal, and we're working on the King Kong job. Let's say. He wants to change something different than where we had started. He'll come up and he says, Bob, I want you to change this and change that. And I says, okay, I'll sketch it out for you, make a little doodle on it. We'll put it on a piece of paper and I'll, and I'll price it for you, time and what it's going to cost. And then we would agree. And he says, okay, proceed. And then I've got a document that says the original price of the whole project was and is now adjusted due to the change. And you do that over and over and over. And if you don't do that, you lose your shirt. So, uh, and I would do all the paperwork, you know, for this kind of stuff. Uh, in addition to the design, that way I could stay on top of what we have to do, both for Universal and, and for the, the people actually uh, building this stuff. So, yes, I got very deep into um, change orders. I got deep into uh, how to create uh, paper control forms. In most cases, I did all the estimating for both um, time and money and weight, all that stuff. You kind of do it all together. So, like, so, when, um, yeah, when, when change you're... orders, yeah, change okay. orders, I have to say, we make more margin on the change orders than we do on the job. <laughs> That's like construction, too. <laughs> yeah, but you got to you got to keep precise agreement. <laughs> All right. So, for example, if you're if you're in the process and you said you got part of you're part way through on the plans, okay, and you're kind of you got part of them drawn, and now you're going along, and let's say there might be a change order or two in the process. What is the old? Do you have a timetable from start to finish, or is it kind of like okay, we think this will take two years, we'd like to see it done in a year and a half, but it could take two and a half years. Is did, <laughs> did that go on? Uh, Was that part of it? Well, here's the way it worked with Walt. 
Okay. Well, like in the monorail. He, you know, we walk in, you know, and I first learned about the monorail, but it, the job had been agreed upon about three months before. And I, I learned then that they had started the agreement, but they already set the opening date. Oh, God. Yeah, we start in on the job, and it's going to open on July 17th. Uh, you know, 1959, because Walt says we're going to do it. Well, now we have a a rock-solid date that will not move, and we never move that date. <laughs> you get used to doing it that way, because that way you you know you have a target that cannot be moved, and you know all the tasks that have to be done with all of the vendors, all the trades, all the parts, all the design, engineering, and testing has to get done so that the night before it looks like chaos. We're hoping the paint would dry faster. (laughs) (laughs) The next day, the media has already been invited months before. They've flown in and they're ready to see the big show. Um, Employees have already been hired. A lot of people have been trained already. The band will be there and Walt will be there. Period. <laughs> wow. Now all these I, all these other companies do the, do it exactly the same way. Uh, the day that you blow your date is a big big no no. So we're used to, we're used to the fixed uh, opening day. And okay. if you're not good, you're you're spending some lot of late nights that you don't want to spend. Um, well, if you do, if you if you do your job right, you're 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 only having you know maybe a couple of weekends you got to work on it. Um, I want to go back to Universal. Um, you're talking about the King Kong thing, and I remember being on that when we were out there. That was back in the mid '80s, I think. But did you work on the Jaws project too, by any chance? The Jaws? No, ride? I, di- no I didn't. Uh, I didn't work on the Jaws project. That Universal was doing uh, you know shows that were a little simpler for mm-hmm. their uh, for their tours. And the King Kong was the one where they took a deep breath and said, we're going to spend as much as $7 million for a building and a gorilla and a bunch of uh, show apparatus for a show where the tram will go through it. So Universal had been very cautious up to that point. They decided to spend big money and do big shows. And after that, they got very used to doing it. And that was their method of uh, doing business. Okay. As, did, was Space Mountain, is that Universal or is that Disney World? That's Disney World. Uh, we have a Space Mountain in uh, in Disneyland, and we have a Space Mountain in uh, Walt Disney World, yes. Did, did you work on that one, too, and, uh, on those? Yes. Well, the Space Mountain uh, ride in, uh, Walt, in Walt Disney World, I designed the vehicles, yes. Okay. So out of all, of all the really cool stuff that you've done— with Disney, Universal, and let's say Steve Wynn, when you did uh, Treasure Island, what uh, is there? Is there one that you? Which one? Which one is 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 probably the wildest and hairiest? No pun intended, there, King Kong. Uh, which is the wild and hairiest one you've ever done? Uh, people ask that question all the time. It's, it's such a big mix of everything. Is it okay? Some some of the some of the small ones could be the riskiest, right? And some of the biggest biggest ones seem to be a little bit less trouble. I'd have to say, in the order of magnitude, uh, the uh, the pirate show was right around thirteen million dollars for all of it in front of the building, mm-hmm. and the fact that I was the primary designer of the big chunks and how they move and where they go and how they function was probably a gigantic risk up front because I'm going to specify the size of an, a very expensive big hole <laughs> being dug down to some uh, material on the ground called caliche. It's like digging through concrete. Yeah. Extreme expense to do that. And I recall going up there every two weeks, and when I saw the hole, and I drew this on a Macintosh in my home office, I thought, oh, boy, I hope those dimensions are right. <laughs> it's a big hole. And then I thought, oh, I hope the ships, everything behaves the way it's supposed to. And, of course, it did. But you always have this trepidation that am I looking at every detail every day? I am looking for 
the Achilles heel and every detail why something would not work. And I have to think in terms of I'm finding all the ways it works. I don't, I don't see the things that will make it not work. And if you do something like that, you can go all the way through a job, you know, plodding along very carefully, even at a high speed. You, you'll get to that, uh, you know, a couple of weeks before the opening day, and you're, you can breathe easy because it's in, it's working, it does what it's supposed to do. Then everybody else is doing their stuff with stunt work, you know, fire stuff. It takes a lot of fiddling around to get it right. Lighting takes a long time to fiddle around, but the main chunks have to go in early. Um, any any special effects for any movies? Did you do anything? Sure. Uh, Steven Spielberg saw uh, the King Kong that was uh, uh, making and stung. He'd come over every lunch hour and watch what we're doing, but he never interfered. And then one day he gives me a call and he says, can you come talk to me? He says, I bought a, I bought a book and I got a, a proof copy of it. Uh, it's about, it needs a, um, it needs a dinosaur, a, tyr- a Tyrannosaurus Rex. <laughs> he says, can you come over and help me with it? So for about five months, uh, I was with a team of people doing what we call pre-production planning to see if uh, how would, if we did a movie like this, we're going to have a, what we call a practical animated figure. Uh, these things can be kind of big and expensive and kind of scary, but they only got to last long enough to shoot the movie and then they can be junk, <laughs> which is not like a theme park that's going to run for 20 years. Well, it's a different kind of business, but you have to do a lot of thinking up front. And Stephen was very good at, good at that, taking time to make sure, can we do this and will it work? And sure enough, uh, by the time he went into production on it, uh, the uh, big Tyrannosaurus Rex was uh, basically kind of built and operated by two guys that helped me with King Kong earlier. So everything I learned on King Kong, I made sure that Spielberg could uh, get the benefit of that for for the animated figure for Jurassic Park. The interesting thing at that point was, that was at the point in the movies where big machines were always done with what we call a practical. It's a physical thing, but the computer-generated imagery was just starting to come at about that time. So that movie was very curious in that Stephen added a lot to the story in the end of the movie, you know, in the science center where the all the, the dinosaurs jumping around were all CGI. So there was a changeover between a practical shifting to CGI. And nobody makes uh, practicals anymore. Everything's CGI, basically. And then the second one I did was Godzilla. And that was the movie wasn't very good, but the Godzilla sure was a good looking, <laughs> nice working machine. It was a it was a, it was a really cool thing. But we got down to where uh, a tiny company, some tiny people can go far faster and far cheaper than big classical companies. And in this respect, I was the sole designer of the structure of the 30-foot-tall Godzilla, where I make all the production drawings. Now we had a shop where two guys, and in a case of five months, I designed it, and two guys built the basic machine so that this could then they could put the body on it, uh, you know, all of the you know, exterior body parts. But the basic machine inside was a big, flailing hydraulic machine. It was very powerful. Uh, it was fun to, fun to control it with a little thing called a Waldo. And I, I usually designed the machine, but I never touched the, the controls. And they said, come on, Bob. Grab the Waldo, and you can throw that thing all around all you want. You can't hurt it. And I was just like... There's kids over the fence watching this machine flailing in space. And I thought, oh, I got Godzilla in my hands. Here. <laughs> so, uh, it, it, it was it was an easy machine. It worked worked uh, with no trouble at all. So yeah, two movie two movie gags. Yes, super. Hey, let's jump back. Um, over the years, you've you've uh, come in contact with come in contact with some pretty significant people. And earlier, you and I were talking a little bit about Sid Mead. Um, share a little something about with us because I, I reached out to him and unfortunately I wasn't able to get him on the show before he passed. But uh, you, yeah. you you had a relationship yeah. with him. Tell us about that. Yeah, yeah. Sid Mead was one of an extremely unusually talented and brilliant uh, mind that could foresee things that don't exist 
He graduated from Art Center College of Design with a classification that they made just for him called Extreme Distinction. Um, his basic thrust in life was to make paintings, beautiful paintings, and all different kinds of sizes for different companies like U.S. Steel. I hired him for years to make dreamy-looking pictures of the future that could come using steel. Uh, he did designs for interiors for, you know, like a Saudi Airlines for a for the king to have his own 737, the 750. I mean, excuse me, 707 interior. He did stuff for every kind of company as inspirational art. Industrial designers all over the world, when you're having a bad day with your ideas, you just go and look at your portfolio of Sydney drawings and dream. And, and get your spark back up again. He was so unique. He had the simplest way of doing it. I never could figure out how his ideas would come out of his head. You know, he did stuff for Blade Runner, for movies. He just, he did it with the greatest of ease. There's something about natural born genius. They're like that. And I got along with him very well from the standpoint that uh, early on, um, he was aware of the work I did, and I was very aware of the work that he did. And he says, he says, okay, Robert, and he says, uh, I'll ignore uh, your fame if you'll ignore my fame, and then we can get along. So we did. Wow. Um, brilliant, brilliant man. Now, was he before or after you at the Art Center? No, he came just a little bit after me. Okay, all right. Um, we mentioned a little bit about, uh, was it uh, Bill Powers? Was that the gentleman we were talking about earlier? There was also a designer? Jim Powers. Jim Powers. Yeah, Jim, Powers. Jim, Power. Jim Power was a uh, Ford lover. He loved uh, design. He designed at Ford for quite a number of years, then returned to California because, you know, he grew up here and uh, had a his own industrial design company. He did all kinds of industrial design work of all kinds, graphics, and just you name it. And his company, he had a little company, you know, several employees. And he was the classical industrial designer, the kind of shop that a company needs a new product, new design, you know, whether it's a vehicle or a handbag or some piece of architecture. And his company could design and produce beautiful, beautiful work. He was, um, he was very calm, very methodical. And uh, I went over to his, uh, his home, which was actually an industrial building, uh, gorgeous home in the top and the bottom. I swear there must have been 30, 40 cars. <laughs> <laughs> he's, a, he's a car collector. <laughs> yeah, I think he collected primarily Lincolns because he worked for Lincoln, uh, Lincoln Mercury, I think, at one point in time. In oh, yeah. Days. Yeah, he, he really, really loved uh, Ford products. In fact, <clears throat> he was such a dedicated car guy in his office. He bought a 66 um, Oldsmobile Toronado, a right. red one. right. He's, he sawed it in half, or a little less than half, and he plastered it on his office wall. <laughs> now, that car was actually designed by Chuck Jordan. Chuck Jordan was also, was the, when you said you were on the GM scholarship at, uh, at uh, the Art Center, did, did, was Chuck Jordan one of the guys that recruited you? Because he recruited a lot of people from the Art Center. Uh, no, uh, Chuck was already at uh, at General Motors by the time uh, I met up with him. I, you okay. know, I knew who he was, but then I, you know, I'd see him occasionally because, you remember, General Motors and uh, Disney were working together on the Epcot attraction of the General Motors uh, World of Motion. Oh, yeah, that's right. And yes. so, uh, yeah, so we did a lot of interfacing work, and of course. Uh, we flew back there to Detroit a number of times, and I'd go into the GM Tech Center because our first contact was with Bill Mitchell, head of uh, GM Design. And I did that at the uh, Art Center School in Pasadena when they dedicated the school in 76. I got a hold of Bill Mitchell, and I, I was telling him about the new Disney project called Epcot. And then uh, he got very interested in talking to Disney and, uh, you know, making a long story short, Disney and um, General Motors got together very quickly and were successful in having them join us in our Epcot project. And that all went through Bill Mitchell, who was a super, super guy to hang around with and, along with, and with Chuck Jordan at the same time. Interesting. 
How about uh, movie stars and actors? Uh, how many of those did you cross paths with? Not really. I simply saw them on the Disney studio lot. Uh, whatever current movie was being shot, you know, the actors would be there. And, of course, uh, where my office was for a while was next to a little kind of a private walkway uh-huh. where uh, they could kind of walk out of sight. You know, people that are very, very well known have to be kind of careful where they walk. Uh, you know, you don't want to get hounded even on a even on a studio back lot. So I'd see Jack Webb and Bella Lugosi and Boris Karloff. Oh, wow. And, you know, any any number of actors, uh, you know, you'd see them on the lot all the time. But, you know, you'd, the, the rule is you do not bother talent. You don't. Okay. Uh, you're friends that's, with that's, Kurt that's Russell? That's rule. You, were, you tell me earlier you were friends with Kurt Russell because both you guys have uh, flying in common? Oh, yeah. Well, Kurt Russell... Um, you know, he got along with Walt Disney right up to right up to literally the month that Walt passed away, because uh, Walt saw that Kurt was a uh, you know he's a you know kid you know at the time, but Walt saw all the things that Kurt Russell was going to be good at, and uh, those two got along really good. And of course, you know by the time Kurt Russell kept on working, got some money, he went over to Burbank Airport and immediately started learning how to fly. And then pretty soon, you know, in later life, he bought a, a um, a Pilatus PC-12, which is like a you know a flying uh, SUV, you know, for his whole family. Um, yeah, I met him several times, and in fact, he came over to my house one time and uh, and saw some of the uh, uh, drawings and photographs of an airplane called a GB uh, R2, which is a 1931 racing plane. And he he jumped straight up when he saw it. He says, "Oh, my grandfather was a test pilot on that airplane." Working really? for the Granville brothers, yeah. So a lot of things to do with cars and airplanes and people and movies and entertainment. Everybody's kind of in a connected loop in a way. All right, let's let's talk a little bit about you. So you uh, let's talk a little bit about your gliding because you were a glide uh, a gliding. You flew gliders, right? So tell us about yeah. that. And I didn't realize you guys go twenty thousand feet in the air. Is that what you guys are up there and buzz around with oh, the I, air I, currents? I, I, I flew higher than that. You're not supposed to. So, uh, <laughs> it's, yeah. So, anyway, when I was about five or six years old, I was at an air show at the Grand Central Air Terminal, Glendale, uh, and I was so enamored. I was watching two gliders doing aerobatic maneuvers in the in the sky. And I just thought, oh, that's what I want to do. And, of course, in World War II, you can't get balsa wood, so we made our gliders out of you know, something else. So I built uh, gliders of all kinds, tow-line gliders, you know, hand launch, all that. After, right after World War II, I went to an air show, and I got a, got a, got a, uh, almost got a ride in a glider, but uh, you know, I didn't have the five bucks. So it wasn't until I'm in my late 20s I joined a glider club. And ah, oh, finally, after all these years, now I'm in a club and I'm learning how to fly gliders. And it was just everything I wanted. There's something about a passionate about flying gliders. The same way when you talk to a guy with a you know with a big boat with a big uh, you know big Chevy engine or something in it, but you talk to a guy with a sailboat. Sailboat people they are entirely different. They're going to use the natural physical forces of the earth to move. And a glider is going to be the same way. A glider is going to be up in the air, and a glider. There's all kinds of uh, physical reasons to do with the phys- air physics stuff. Rising air, you know, you can have hot air, thermals. You can have wind blowing up against uh, a mountain. You can have a bouncing mountain wave. All these kind of technical things. There's so much energy in the atmosphere. If you understand it and know how to use it, you can go out to the, the glider port and getting your glider and they tow it with a rope, you know, up to maybe 2,000 feet and you let go of the end of the rope. And then you're flying the rest of the day uh, in rising air currents. Uh, when you're doing it, you can't explain it to anybody because it's so inherently easy because you understand it. It's like, oh, anybody can understand chess. Yeah, right. <laughs> 14,000 moves. <laughs> gliders, are the, gliders are the same way. You have a, a large body of technical knowledge of atmospheric physics and it's free horsepower and it's so powerful i could fly as long as 350 miles around southern california in a day or i could 
go out and fly four or five hours, you know, go out on the day when the day is good, uh, go up to like the high Sierra mountains. And one time I was at 21,000 feet, uh, oddly enough, in a rising air current in a, in a very light uh, snowstorm, you know, different combinations of atmospheric things. And you, you feel everything in the air, you know, you're flying with your fingertips because there's no, you know, there's no real forces on, uh, you know, on the controls of a glider. You have uh, no electricity, no battery, no gasoline, no nothing. You just have a very strong light structure that you can just, uh, just with a flick of a finger, you can get that glider to do anything. Just, it's it's weird to tell people that, what do you do, Bob? Oh, I, I'm over the mountains with no motor. Well, how do you stay up? Well, it's complicated. But it's so easy. It's my relaxation. I can enjoy the earth. I enjoy seismograph, seismology, so I'm always looking at the San Andreas fall from the air. I love clouds, enjoy the beauty of everything. So 50 years of just glorious, relaxing passion that would scare the daylights out of anybody else. (laughs) All right. By contrast, we've got a few minutes left. Let's talk about this stunning Ferrari 250 Lusso that you had at one point? Well, I always I always wanted a Ferrari. You know, just, you know, you dream as a kid because, you know, I was a race car official at the, you know, at the races in Southern California. I went to the Ferrari factory in 1955, so I got a chance to, you know, see what is what's really a Ferrari like in, in those kind of days. And sure enough, uh, there was a Ferrari advertised in the L.A. Times one day, and I called the guy up, and he said, yeah, price is good, you know, like 26000 something like that. And I had it for seven years and sold it, like, for $58,000. I loved working on it. I loved driving it. It was a strange car from the standpoint. This was the last of the street touring cars that were had hand-built bodies. And Scuggly Eddie had the contract to build about 350 of these bodies. Uh, the car was very strange. The mechanical parts were flawlessly made, and the body parts were really ratty. Huh. Sometimes the right and the left side of the car weren't necessarily the same. Uh, but it was the nature of a Scuggly Eddie uh, body. But the car was so had a simple beauty to it. it had a you know th- little three liter engine. Yeah, not not a lot of horsepower, but oh, twelve cylinders. I drive with the window down, looking for a tunnel so I can pass through there at three thousand six hundred RPM, which is the brake main main effective pressure peak, where it has that perfect V twelve wrap. I go out on Sunday mornings and where well, there's not much traffic, and I know a place has got a couple of tunnels. Oh, this is good. <laughs> Same kind of passion as flying the glider. You got to have everybody's got to have one Ferrari once in their life. Well, that sounds like you had probably the creme de la creme of Ferraris because it's even today by today's standards that's still considered one of the the the, the prize of Ferraris. Well, yeah, I think a little over three hundred three hundred or more built. And I you know twenty six five I think bought it and then fifty eight and I sold it and then it, you know. Same kind of car later on. They're going for you know like four hundred thousand, you know. But you know, collector cars they go up and down, you know, depending on the you know the tastes as people as things change. But um, but well, I, I was going to say seven, uh, we, seven years. Of, yeah, go ahead. Seven years of a Ferrari was perfect. Um, we got maybe twenty five thirty seconds left. You uh, now one of your passions is you have a flight simulator at home, and you fly fixed wing and rotary. Yes, uh, I, I have about 19 aircraft that I fly. Twelve of them, I uh, keep current in them. And helicopters, you got to stay current. I have a beautiful B-222 uh, L helicopter. I fly an airplane as big as an Airbus A350, and I fly it by hand instead of autopilot. I have an ancient C-47, the old Douglas DC-3, which is just a sweet old airplane. I've got a P-51 Mustang. I have a Lockheed uh, P-38 uh, Lightning. Uh, my standard airplane I fly, just because it's a nice plane, is the Boeing 737-800, which is probably like an old shoe. It's an easy, reliable airplane with no bad tricks. 
I fly it with Southwest colors so that I can taxi really fast on the run, on the taxiways with it. So yeah, I I my big passion four four nights a week. I'm going somewhere, some airport with some aircraft. Now, did you design this uh, simulator, or is this something that uh, the average uh, guy can buy? No, the aircraft simulator world is a big world, all the way from multi-million one that uh, airlines used to train their pilots, all the way down to uh, people can use a laptop and buy a, a program like uh, X-Plane 11, which costs you 65 bucks, has a bunch of airplanes in it. You can buy the controls for maybe 60, 100 bucks or whatever. Or you can build something that costs you several thousand dollars and you fill your house with, with you know, real air, airplane-looking parts. So you can enter simulator world from a very, very small amount all the way to you know, make something big for your home. So what is yours? Is yours something you sit in or is yours basically a laptop? No, I've got one of these fancy uh, gamer chairs. You know these kids were the gamers? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. And I, and I got a high-end uh, 244, no, 144 frame rate uh, uh, a gamer one. In other words, you're going to play Fortnite or you're going to play one of these things with all the blood and guts. You have to have a high-speed, high-frame rate, big screen that so you can see all the blood. Uh <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it works great for an airplane too <laughs> so it's like controls you know yeah it's got a uh control lever got a power lever on the left side and it got a stick on the right side and it has rudder pedals on the floor big, big professional looking pedals so it's, it's a full airplane as far as the handling and the looks but i use it for navigation i love precise navigation most of my flying is instrument flying and and uh you know the clouds uh, I'm not the kind of guy that drives around, you know, looks in everybody's backyard. I like precise flying uh, applications and a precise flight, make an instrument landing at night and park the plane and go to bed and say, wow, wasn't that cool? Well, on that note, Bob, we're going to have to wrap it up here. But I tell you what, I have truly enjoyed part one, part two, part three hanging out with you here. The stores are amazing. You can just sense your passion. And, you know, I mean, and, and, and you're 91 years old, right? 91, something like that, 91, 92. And you're still out there at it, doing things. You, um, I, I'm just, I'm totally, you're an inspiration. That's what I can tell you. You're an inspiration. And I truly thank you for hanging out with us here at Nostalgic Radio and Cars. And we will do part four, part five, part six down the road. But right now, part three, I am so thrilled, and I wish you all the best, and uh, you take care, and thank you again for coming on our show. Okay, thank you. Okay, listeners, I want to thank everybody for tuning in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Tell your friends to tune in and listen to interviews with some of the most legendary and fascinating names in motorsports. And again, I want to thank Bob Gurr. It was a pleasure to finally meet him at the Pebble Beach Concourse. So, it's been an exciting week. As I'm heading into San Francisco through Marin County, south on US 101, passing San Rafael, California, I want to make sure that all you guys show up for some of the car shows. Stay safe, drive carefully, and love your family. And I'll see you next week. Wait to see.